This is Binghamton Now on News Radio 1290 WNBF Binghamton and WNBF.com. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Mostly sunny today, high near 60. Mostly cloudy tonight, slight chance of rain, low around 44. Cloudy Saturday with rain likely, high near 52. Sunday will be partly sunny with a slight chance of showers and a high near 56. Meal services at the Downtown Salvation Army Center have resumed after Binghamton Mayor Jared Cram requested they be suspended due to safety concerns. Police were called twice last week to respond to fights that broke out near the site at 131 Washington Street. A dispute on October 5th was said to have involved the use of a knife and rocks among men who were visiting the Salvation Army facility while breakfast was being served. A less serious altercation involving teenagers reportedly occurred the previous day. Graham contacted a Salvation Army official after he was informed of the disputes. He said he wanted the agency to develop a detailed plan of action to address the problems. City Hall and Binghamton police officials discussed the issues with Salvation Army representatives on Tuesday. They agreed to implement new measures, including offering breakfast inside the center. In an email statement to WNBF News, Deputy Mayor Megan Hyman said the measure will include changing the way clients enter and exit the building. A Salvation Army spokesperson said following the discussions with the major mayor and neighboring business owners, the agency implemented a revamped meal service on Thursday. In a statement, he wrote, while dinner service will continue to be of the grab-and-go variety in the short term, we are also exploring ways to move our dinner service indoors. Several dozen people may eventually move into a century-old former high school building on Main Street in Johnson City. Village Mayor Martin Meany said a developer has outlined plans to transform the three-story building at 435 Main Street into a residential complex. The old building was used by students for several decades until the new Johnson City High School opened in 1970. The property was acquired by McKilligan Industrial Supply for $200,000 in 1975. It was transformed into the Nypen Trade Center with space rented to various entities, including businesses and churches. Meany told WNBF News that the developer Mark Lane hopes to turn the old school into a 62-unit apartment building. The mayor said the plan calls for 50 market-rate apartments and 12 affordable housing units. He said 30,000 square feet of the project would be set aside for a future commercial tenant. Meany said the redevelopment project is expected to cost over $15 million. New York State Assemblywoman Donna Lepardo was joined by local leaders in a call to action on Thursday. They urged Governor Kathy Hochul to sign the direct pay law bill into law to support emergency medical service providers. This was one of six press conferences held across upstate on the same topic. Many communities are struggling to provide emergency management services to their residents for a variety of reasons, including the current EMS reimbursement process. Many independent ambulance provider organizations do not receive a payment directly for the services. Instead, when a patient uses an out-of-network ambulance, 
the health insurer's payment for the service goes to the patient and often does not get forwarded to the ambulance provider as intended. This has resulted in significant financial losses for EMS providers. Further complicating the matter is that some consultants are under the false impression that a volunteer ambulance is a free service or intentionally take advantage of the reimbursement model for their own financial gain. The direct pay bill, which unanimously passed both houses of the legislature in June, aims to change the way EMS providers are paid. While they're able to bill insurers directly, they would not be able to payment payment directly. This will guarantee that providers receive the critical resources required to do their jobs safely and effectively and ensure that ambulances are available when needed. A New York man killed after police say he came at them with swords in his hands was a former elite fencer. The state attorney general of New York says that this opened a probe into the killing of Alan Weber, who died Tuesday night after being shot at his home on Long Island by a Suffolk County police officer. Suffolk County police say officers had gone into the home in response to a 9-11 call and Weber was wearing a fencing mask and had the swords when officers entered. In 1995, Weber was on the team that went to the Pan Am Games and took the silver medal in the team foil category. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290, WNBF. I'm Bob Joseph. This is Binghamton Now, Friday, October 13th, 2023. Phone lines are open now for you, 607-772-1290. Call in. What's on your mind? Make it count. We're live from America's Parlor City, Binghamton Now, News Radio, WNBF. We have a good program planned for you today. A great program coming up. In addition to your phone calls, two guests will be on the program. Coming up shortly, we'll be speaking live with journalist and author Tom Wilbur about his latest book, Vanishing Point. The search for a B-24 bomber crew lost on the World War II home front. Intriguing story about something that happened eight decades ago. And Tom Wilbur joined us live here at News Radio WNBF. Next hour, the noted historian Gerald Smith will discuss history, including the history of the International Business Machines Complex in Endicott, New York. And we'll talk about um, some aspects of IBM in our area that haven't received too much attention over the years. Understandably so. 
<laughs> so if you uh, if you ever worked at IBM or know anyone who ever worked at IBM, maybe you had relatives, mom, dad, grandparents, whatever. If you have an interest in uh, IBM, Endicott, and Glendale, and Owego. And Binghamton. Remember when IBM actually had so many employees around here? They had some working in downtown Binghamton. Oh, I remember one time a few years ago when WNBF Radio was at Center Plaza at Henry and Shenango Streets. IBM had workers in the building. They needed the space. They didn't have enough space in Endicott or Glendale or Westover or Vestal. They actually were running out space in Center Plaza. So what do you think about that? So we'll talk about IBM next hour with Jerry Smith. And some other local businesses, too. Not just IBM, but Link and Endicott Johnson and a few other businesses that were so much a part of the Binghamton area during the 20th century. At 9.13, just take a, a quick look at the headlines of the Times, New York Times headline today. Above the fold, 300,000 homeless in battered Gaza as food runs low. Hospitals overwhelmed and fuel scarce as Israel strikes back at Hamas. And the uh, story, top story on the front page of the Times, is written by Edward Wong and Hiba Yazbek. And here is the lead. The story, Dateline Tel Aviv, six days of Israeli airstrikes have left more than 300,000 Palestinians in the Gaza Strip homeless, with two million residents facing critical shortages of food, water and fuel, while Israeli troops prepared on Thursday for a possible ground invasion after the Hamas deadly weekend assault. I see... um, Looking up at the monitor, CNN reporting, Israel is telling 1.1 million people to leave northern Gaza. And the United Nations says it's impossible. 1.1 million people are supposed to leave northern Gaza. I believe, I believe they've been dropping leaflets on the region. To warn people, leave. Closer to home. Do you use energy? Of course you do. We all do. And it is no surprise that the cost of energy for your home will soar. Of course it will. It's going to soar. NYSEG has received approval for 
a rate hike. Public Service Commission has given its approval. Here is uh, the story as reported by Emily Barnes from New York State Team. It's Gannett's New York State Team, Emily Barnes. As the story about our rate hikes. And this appears on Gannett websites in New York State. I happen... <laughs> for some reason to be reading it off the Democrat and Chronicle website, but you can also see it at PressConnects.com. So the story is both NYSEG and RG&E customers will see double-digit rate hikes on their utility bills starting next month. The changes for electric and gas utilities were waiting on approval from the Public Service Commission. And as you would expect, the commission voted unanimously for the increase, Commissioner John Majori said, I see this as an unusually high rate increase. So the two options available for this commission, a yes or a no vote, a yes vote is most likely to result in the less bad outcome for taxpayers. If the proposal was rejected, customers may have seen even higher rates. Well, of course. Buckle up. Buckle up. Does anybody know how much higher electricity and natural gas prices will um, go over the next decade in New York State? No, nobody can accurately forecast. All we can say is enjoy the bill you receive from NYSEG this month. You might want to set it aside so you can refer to it maybe every October and then just track how much higher your NYSEG bill is each year for the next 10 years. That's your assignment. Again, uh, this is referencing the story from Emily Barnes, New York State team member for Gannett. NYSEG's proposed rate increases, and as we said, they're now accepted, 22.1% for electric use and 6.1% for gas over three years. So, there you go. Under the new rate plan, NYSEG residential electric customers who use 600 kilowatt hours per month would see an average total monthly bill increase of about 10 bucks. Or for those who don't like that formulation, $10. So that would be more than 10% higher starting next month. So... So let's see, if your bill goes up $10 a month times 12, I guess I guess that means $120 less money you would have to spend on food in 2024. Gas bills. NYSEG residential gas heating customers using an average of 100 therms per month would see an average total monthly bill increase of about $5, 3.6% starting in November. And in the second year... An increase of more than $2 a month. In the third year, an increase of $4 a month. So where will you get all the extra money you need to pay your electric and gas bills? Well, eat less.
Don't see the movies. Any any movie that you want to see, you could save um, money by not going to movies or baseball games or the Speedy Fest or the golf tournament or hockey games. You save money that way, and then you can have enough money to pay your nice egg bill and also feed your family. It's nine twenty at News Radio WNBF. Now, of course. To be clear, nobody nobody is blaming anyone here. It's the high cost of everything. I'm not suggesting the utility is to blame for the high cost of bringing us that shockingly good electricity or the intensely odiferous natural gas. No, they're not to blame. I'd be like blaming me for bad news. There's... In, in a sense, I mean, all they are doing is uh, providing a much-needed service. So it's not their fault that the cost of this service that we need, electricity and gas, not their fault. It just is. There's no one to blame. Friday morning on WNBF, WNBF.com. Don't worry, things should get better soon. From the Galt Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. Save in a big way at Galt Chevrolet. WNBF at 9.25. It's Friday. Back to the phones we go. Vic from the Forks. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I hope you're well today, but I wanna, I'm calling to talk about NYSED's rate increase. Uh, yesterday I was uh, reading some information on it, and I don't remember where the article come from. Let me say that right up front. But they said in the article... Partial cause of the rate increase is actually the cost of them integrating solar into their uh, grid or whatever you want to call it. And uh, for them to even list that, you got to wonder why. Um, my thought is they're being forced by our governor to, to integrate these solar farms into their electric grid, and it's costing them more money, which is being passed on to us. Uh, if you ever watch the solar farm go in across from a power station, it usually takes about two or three months of people there working, putting in a, uh, uh, the, the system so that it'll take the solar field energy and put it into the power lines. But um, uh, New York is being held hostage. We, we have communities that have their own power, like Green New York has, uh, has their own power. All right. They're not seeing these well, municipal increases. systems. Well, maybe not much yet, but stand by for rate increases for them too. Maybe, maybe not uh, as as dramatic or as as fast. But I I suspect uh, ratepayers in places like Green and and Endicott, people who are getting their power from lower priced municipal systems, should also buckle up. Although I have to say. Uh, moving back into the Union District of Endicott right now looks uh, r- rather enticing. 
for me. I, I may have to move back to one of my favorite neighborhoods. Plus, it'll be close to the donuts, too. Exactly. And, and, you know, they applied, I believe, for a 64% increase, and they got a 33%. And I don't know if you remember our call a couple uh, about two, three years ago. I predicted that the rate, electric rates were going to go up 30% that one year, and they went up 15%. Uh, now they're up uh, 33%. I think that in total, the electric rates have gone up almost 90% over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Still I, not as I, much as uh, the cost of, percentage-wise, the cost of the print edition of a typical Gannett newspaper. Yeah, well, we're living in tough times right now, and, you know, it, it's only going to get tougher as AI comes into play, less people are working. Uh, the only people that are going to afford it, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, Bob, they're going to be able to afford electric rates and stuff like that are people who are getting government assistance. Well, eventually, eventually something will have to happen. I don't know. Yeah, now, Kathy Hochul put out uh, the obligatory statement. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I was listening on my way in. And, um, I mean, it was... It was so predictable and, and, and yet, you know, trying, trying to indicate that she cares about you, the average NYSEG ratepayer, when in fact it was probably written by a low-level functionary who gets uh, uh, more, more money than they ought to working for the executive chamber. So it's I, – I don't know what's going to happen, Vic. The only thing I can predict is uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Stay, stay tuned. Yeah, you know, a PSC has handled the NYSEG electricity and natural gas, gas uh, rates for the moment. But, uh, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think it's bad now, uh, get back to me in five years, assuming the station can still afford to pay for the electricity we need to keep the one flickering light on in the studio. Gary from the west side, you're on. NYSEG has a golden egg, Bob. I mean, you know, with the... Everybody's going electric cars, no more gas. They want electric stoves. I mean, they just, they can really just, uh, they're going to be raking in the dough here. Sure. Sure. They got us. Uh-huh. They got us where they want they us. I it. mean, it's, it's almost, uh, to the point where they're, they're considering bringing back Ready Kilowatt and putting up a 200 foot tall Ready Kilowatt down here at the, uh, Parlor City Roundabout just to leer at us. I did want to discuss the uh, the gentleman that went on the bus and started uh, yelling at the kids. Who, oh, that's uh, uh, like, where was that? Harpersville. Was it? Okay. I think it. And, let me just and um, let me because that broke late in the day yesterday, and and so I I didn't didn't write a story, but let me just grab the. This is the news release from the sheriff's office. It says. A Harpersville father faces 27 counts of endangering the welfare of a child after entering a school bus, screaming and threatening students were on the bus. And the allegation was that uh, some of those kids were bullying his children. And so it says the um, sheriff's department sent deputies to Cumber Road in the town of Colesville for someone causing a disturbance on a school bus. It was uh, 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, and apparently they... Talked to witnesses and reviewed some uh, video. It says the guy stopped the school bus and began yelling, screaming, swearing, and threatening uh, some of the kids on the bus because apparently he believes some of them had 
bullied his kids? So he may have went over the line there with the yelling and screaming at the kids. Uh, you know, there's so many things left out of the article that I think, like, we're, is this the first time that his kids were bullied or this has been a continuous thing? How old were these kids that he was yelling at? Were they of the high school age or were they of the younger age? I guess the 27 counts uh, for child endangerment must be because there must have been 27 kiss kids on the bus. Apparently. And uh, the news release says the students range from elementary school to high school ages. And said his right. so, his course of conduct continued for about five minutes before he got off the bus and walked away. So he got off the bus and walked away, but the sheriffs were called. I guess they arrived later than he must have left already, but then he must have went and... Well, yeah, I, so I, I doubt on the way things work, I mean, maybe there was uh, a sheriff's highway patrol... Uh, close by in in the Harpersville area when the call was dispatched, but who knows? I mean, I've as part of uh, a couple of ride-alongs, I've I've um, been in say on East Main Street in Endwell when a deputy had to respond to Center Lyle uh, in the middle of the night for um, domestic dispute, and uh, you know said on the uh, GPS that it was uh, that it would take twenty five minutes to get there. Uh, we got there, I think, in about 18 minutes. But, you know, that's not the kind of driving I do. That's called police driving. But so as far as whatever happened uh, yesterday, I mean, you're right. There there are a lot of questions and not just what happened yesterday, but what else happened earlier in this school year or maybe even previous school years. And what, if anything, the school district did about Right. What's going to happen now, Bob? Because they know, right? So now this guy went on, he yelled at the individual, so they know who the individuals are. So I'm sure they're in the principal's office today explaining how they were bullying. I'm sure well, maybe. Happened. I don't know. You know, the one yeah. thing I know, the way school districts work, they're likely not to say anything about this. Ostensibly right. to protect the privacy right. of the students. Smart. And that's... Right. and and. Yeah, they do have an obligation to protect the privacy of students. But the fact is, they will be able to use that. They can hide behind that excuse, probably not to explain anything else about what happened before yesterday afternoon. Appreciate your call. Coming up next, we're going to talk with journalist and author Tom Wilbur about his latest book, Vanishing Point, The Search for a B-24 Bomber crew lost on the World War II home front. This is something that goes back eight decades. And Tom Wilbur has spent a significant amount of time researching what happened back in 1944. Was it 1944? Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> it was February 1944, right? Correct. My, my memory actually works. So anyway, we'll we'll talk about that uh, coming right up with Tom Wilbur here in the studio on News Radio, WNBF 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, streaming at WNBF.com. I'm Bob Joseph. We welcome back to the studio journalist and author Tom Wilbur. Good morning. Morning, Bob. 
I was doing a little quick research into how many times you've been on the program in the past over, oh, say, the last 10 or 11 years. And by my quick tally, and this is just based on Twitter mentions over 11 years, you had been on the program at least nine times talking about various topics. It could have been fracking back when that was so controversial and dominated the uh, the headlines here in the southern tier and across much of New York State. You also did a lot of uh, environmental reporting for the Press and Sun Bulletin, including uh, TCE and the plume in Endicott. And we, uh, you know, I, we had so many conversations over the years and yet uh, amazingly it looks like perhaps the last time you were on the program might have been 2015 it's been several years since you've been on Binghamton now yeah uh, time flies but uh, we had a lot to talk about over the years so yeah and the interesting thing about this segment it happens sort of as a fluke because I normally don't do reporting on Sunday afternoons. I view Sunday afternoon usually as as sort of sacred, and if I'm going to relax during the week, that usually is the time. It turned out uh, one Sunday afternoon about a month ago, I was uh, reporting on one story up in the town of Shenango, and then led to another story over at Otsenango Park, and then another story that I'm still working on uh, that'll be coming out about something on, on Front Street in the town of Shenango. And then I went over to Rec Park to see the tennis courts finally in action, and it was great to see uh, a couple of people playing pickleball on the uh, troubled tennis courts that were finally completed after two years. And then I was talking to a guy, and then you come up and say something like, "Hey, Bob Joseph." And it's it, at first I'm saying, "Oh, look, a guy walking his dog." I didn't recognize you at first, and I, I also didn't put two and two together because I knew Tom Wilbur doesn't live near Rec Park, and so and then you finally say, "Oh, I'm Tom." Well, I say, "Oh, of course you are." So anyway, it was, uh, and that's we got talking, and I said, "You know." Going back to last spring, I meant to get in touch with you to talk about your new book. So anyway, that's that's how that's how your appearance came came to happen. Yeah, to I recognize that voice anywhere, Bob. And uh, I heard you a ways away. And there's Bob Joseph tracking down the news, the local news. Always, ha- always asking the, a few questions on the beat. <laughs> yeah, so I, I knew I knew you might not recognize me right away because it's been a while. So yeah. So thank you. Anyway, this book is is something different. And I remember um, there was, in fact, a front-page story, and I think it was reported by Peter Kramer, um, Correct, yeah. I think going back last May, around the time the book was published, yes. and it appeared not only on the front page of the Binghamton Press and Sun Bulletin, but I, I believe most of the other Gannett papers in New York State and also appeared in some other uh, Gannett papers out of state. And just give us... Um, an overview of of the book Vanishing Point: The Search for a B twenty four Bomber Crew Lost on the World War II Home Front. This goes back nearly eighty years, and I, I think it's compelling because it's sort of it's it's something that resonated uh, with you going going back to childhood and spending time up in northern New York, and I suppose in the summer around the campfire. Th- th- that's right. So this is an upstate New York story. And, it, well, it's actually quite a bit bigger than that, but I think your listeners will be interested in the way it pertains to this area. 
And um, I, I actually grew up in the Syracuse area. Uh, I've been in Binghamton, the Binghamton area, for probably about more than 30 years. But I grew up in the, the Syracuse area, and we had a cottage. We still actually have it, an ancestral cottage on the southeastern shore of Lake Ontario, which is just north of a place called Mexico, New York. And uh, my grandparents had it, my parents had it, and I grew up there, spent the summers there beachcombing. And uh, from my some of my earliest memories, of course, are going along the beach and hearing various stories about things that were in the lake and making up stories about things that were in the lake. But uh, this is actually a memory of a memory. I I can't even put a finger on when it actually started, but it always stuck with me that there was a World War II liberator bomber. I didn't even know it was a liberator bomber at the time, but a World War II bomber in the lake with a crew of eight aboard. And, of course, when you're 8, 9, 10 years old, your understanding of World War II is what the movies told you back then in the 60s and 70s, which was the war was fought in the Pacific and the Atlantic. And you didn't really think about the war being fought in Oswego County. So um, that was an idea that I had and it recurred to me every now and then about a B-24 bomber in Lake Ontario with a crew of eight, really. Later, much later, as a working journalist, uh, of course, I got in all these stories, interesting stories here locally, but it always stuck in the back of my mind that I would like to revisit that if I ever had the time uh, to really probe into it. And um, I did take some time off uh, with the paper when I was writing for the paper and had a little more time, looked into it, and sure enough found that it was in fact true. There is a B-24 Liberator bomber with a crew of eight still missing to this day. It's probably in Lake Ontario. And I think that's intriguing that it was something that always stuck with you. And it, it's it's the fact that in, I think the listeners to this program have come to understand um, journalists, especially people who are lifelong journalists, we have this insatiable curiosity about everything, including some things that really were never part of our lives. But uh, and I look back over the years and say, you know, there are some other things never covered in, in day-to-day reporting, but there are still a few things that I came across that at some point, I'd like to go back and explore further if I have time to, to do research because you always know there's more to the story. Yeah, absolutely. And so the first thing is, and you hear this all the time, there's a rumor or there's an interesting story or there's something that piques your curiosity or a caller, uh, you know, they call in with, with a tip and it's, wow, this would be a good story. Is it true? And And so due diligence, a lot of times it's just not true or you can't confirm it. Um, and other times you hit on something. Wow, nobody ever told, told, told me about this. So I think that's part of the natural reporting process. And you have those tips or ideas or notions that, oh, this would be a good story. And every now and then they work out. And then when you get to that point where you can confirm that, it, that then that's just the beginning of what you need to do. And that, that was the case with this book. And that's sort of an aha moment. It's like... I thought there was something. You, you follow your instinct or a gut feeling, and then the point where you say, "Yes, there there is more to this story, and there may be actually a lot of layers to the onion to unpeel to try to get at at a truth that up to this point has never been 
documented publicly. Yeah, which is one of the wonderful things about being a journalist. We got we got great jobs that way because we we're, we have the jobs of looking into this. And we're authorized, not legally, but um, essentially we're authorized, I think, to ask questions and go almost anywhere within reason without trespassing and and ask questions that the average person would probably be told, you know, none of your business, which the way I look at it, um, whether it's an incident where several several, uh, military personnel were lost decades ago, it's still our business. Even if it's been uh, the better part of a century, and even if most people, including most of their relatives, may no longer be with us, it's still part of our history, part of the region's history, and part of U.S. history. Oh, absolutely. So we're the eyes and the ears of our readers and listenerships. And and, and with this, um, you know, there was an obligation to find out. This is a very public story, right? Of course, World War II, um, this was a public event. I found out that it was more public than, than I realized back in the day. And uh, it represented something gr- much greater uh, which was of overwhelming public interest, and that is so. So there's this. This is as I did the research on this, I found out that there's many different stories here, and this particular story is iconic of something bigger. And one of the stories, of course, is what happened and how did that end up getting lost. And and that's 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 a narrative that I tell throughout the book. And then the second story is that. I thought this was this mythical, unusual thing that there's a bomber in the lake, and I came to learn that actually this happened all the time back in 1944. There were 15,000 domestic training deaths on the home front, 15,000 from 1941 to 1945. Um, That's a staggering number. In other words, uh, the boys and sometimes gals – men and women uh, flying these, they weren't really well-versed in how to fly back then. The age of flight was still relatively young. They had to get uh, literally on board to to pilot these formations wing to wing, and they were crashing and getting lost all the time. And it's something that we take for granted because we talk about the, the losses in the Pacific and the Atlantic. We don't realize that there are 15,000 just in the uh, U.S. Army Air Force died uh, let alone the, the injured and other things back in back during the war. Were you surprised to discover that there is uh, a, a local connection, a regional connection to to this story, the loss of the B twenty four bomber? Yeah, I guess uh, I would have been more surprised had I started out with the fifteen thousand and then found that there was something local. But I kind of started out with the local connection, and then you know through my my research uh, found it was something much greater. And so I, I wove that into part of the book. So you have the narrative, which tells the story, and then that talks about a bigger story. And then you have the exposition, which tells about what a lot of it represents. So you spent an extended period of time doing a lot of research. Yes, there were some things that had been publicly documented by by local newspapers at the time in February of 1944 so some of that stuff certainly was accessible and then you had to do additional original reporting to start to put together more of the pieces to this puzzle 
Yes. And so I guess I started with uh, what was available on record. And incidentally, it struck me right away that there was nothing in the public sphere generally, uh, like you have um, memorials and plaques about historical moments throughout upstate New York. And you see that a lot down in Confluence Park. You'll see plaques about... Um, you know, the early days, and in that case, I believe it was the the war of the uh, on the um, Native Americans. And so you, you can go about just about to any historical point and see a plaque. But there was nothing at all that I could find on this other than tales around the campfire. We used to tell the tales around the campfire. So I started uh, with the um, government records and found the accident report and found out, yes, that was that was true. And then I was able to research newspaper archives to take me back to Oswego County in 1944. Um, incidentally, th- this plane uh, took off from Westover, Massachusetts, uh, and it was part of a local training uh, formation flight. It was to be local. It got caught up in some weather, and it flew. It got they back then they. They navigated by primitive means of these homing beacons on radio towers, and it flew and got homing in on a Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania tower. And by the time, it so it basically got in the wrong direction on the wrong signal, and then uh, it got rerouted up through Syracuse. So that would have flown right over this area in, uh, you know, ninth February seventeenth, nineteen forty-four, in a developing nor'easter. And um, went up and was trying to land in Syracuse, and it got lost after that. And for a time, it was it was looking for uh, an appropriate place to uh, to set down, and and people in that area heard it. It was flying at at a very low level. Yeah, so that's where the local newspaper stories kind of give you a blow by blow of what was heard and who thought they heard it, and um, so. That, I mean, I guess some of this is written through contextual history about what was it like to fly a B-24. They had primitive radio back then. Uh, he had a kid from Mississippi, 22-year-old Keith Ponder, that was a pilot. Didn't have a lot of hours, probably never flown through a snowstorm. <laughs> had limited hours on the B-24 to begin with, which are big four-engine bombers. Um, so you had that aspect of it. But... Um, the other part is, uh, you know, what it, what it represents today, and um, uh, the, the bigger question of why hasn't it been found? So there, there's the there's the story that so, so you have the story of what happened that night. You have the story of all these people that have been looking for it for decades and there's a lot that is projected onto this in terms of what it was for some people it's a conspiracy like the government knows where it is uh they don't want it found um for some people it's a treasure hunt because it's this really cool uh, old plane for some people it's they want to find it and bring the boys home and and give them a proper burial so there's all this searching and then there's the question of why hasn't been found and where is it and we've barely scratched the surface, but I hope some of our listeners are intrigued enough to get your book, Vanishing Point, The Search for a B-24 Bomber Crew Lost on the World War II Home Front. Tom Wilbur, thank you for joining us in the studio. We'll have to have you uh, back again in a few years. Thanks so much, Bob. Always great to see you.
actually sooner. We'll have something more to talk about. All right. that. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's 9.56. Historian Gerald Smith is in the building. Wait a second. Hi, Gerald Smith. It's Hi, Ger- it's two, two, two great authors in the building at the same time. Tom Wilbur and Jerry Smith are here. And Jerry Smith is coming up next here on WMBF. <laughs> News Radio 1290, WNBF. Hamas telling residents they should stay where they are. Overnight, the UN warning that moving so many people could have, quote, devastating humanitarian consequences. In the meantime, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Jordan with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas trying to broker a safe passage for Gaza refugees and supplies. Bushra Khalidi, policy lead at Oxfam, says the situation is dire. There's no shelter in Gaza. Um, all the crossings are closed. Even those designated shelters, they're not fit or adequate to shelter people. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is also in the region in Tel Aviv to see the American weapons and other reinforcements sent in to help Israel fight back. 1,500 killed in Gaza, 1,200 killed in Israel so far. Other news on Capitol Hill. Still no House Speaker. The likely nominee, Congressman Steve Scalise, withdrawing after he failed to get enough votes to win. Republicans go back behind closed doors this morning, effectively leaderless and unable to coalesce behind a single candidate for Speaker. Near unanimity among Republicans is required to move forward. Steve Scalise tried and failed. Now the spotlight is on Jim Jordan, but he might have trouble with GOP moderates. ABC Stephen Portnoy. And back overseas, a deadly attack at a high school in northern France. A man armed with a knife killing a teacher and wounding two others. The suspect, a former student, was seen shouting, God is great in Arabic. This is ABC News. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. Louisville, Kentucky announced it is suing automakers Hyundai and Kia, saying their cars are too easy to steal. Insurance industry officials say vehicle thefts are at near record levals across the country. They're going east. They're approaching Green Bay. You don't have to look far on social media to find Dash. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Mostly sunny today, high near 60. Mostly cloudy tonight, slight chance of rain, low around 44. Cloudy Saturday with rain likely, high near 52. Sunday will be partly sunny with a slight chance of showers and a high near 56. 
Meal services at the Downtown Salvation Army Center have resumed after Binghamton Mayor Jared Cram requested they be suspended due to safety concerns. Police were called twice last week to respond to fights that broke out near the site at 131 Washington Street. A dispute on October 5th was said to have involved the use of a knife and rocks among men who were visiting the Salvation Army facility while breakfast was being served. A less serious altercation involving teenagers reportedly occurred the previous day. Graham contacted a Salvation Army official after he was informed of the disputes. He said he wanted the agency to develop a detailed plan of action to address the problems. City Hall and Binghamton police officials discussed the issues with Salvation Army representatives on Tuesday. They agreed to implement new measures, including offering breakfast inside the center. In an email statement to WNBF News, Deputy Mayor Megan Hyman said the measure will include changing the way clients enter and exit the building. A Salvation Army spokesperson said following the discussions with the major mayor and neighboring business owners, the agency implemented a revamped meal service on Thursday. In a statement, he wrote, while dinner service will continue to be of the grab-and-go variety in the short term, we are also exploring ways to move our dinner service indoors. Several dozen people may eventually move into a century-old former high school building on Main Street in Johnson City. Village Mayor Martin Meany said a developer has outlined plans to transform the three-story building at 435 Main Street into a residential complex. The old building was used by students for several decades until the new Johnson City High School opened in 1970. The property was acquired by McKilligan Industrial Supply for $200,000 in 1975. It was transformed into the Nypen Trade Center with space rented to various entities, including businesses and churches. Many told WNBF News that the developer Mark Lane hopes to turn the old school into a 62-unit apartment building. The mayor said the plan calls for 50 market-rate apartments and 12 affordable housing units. He said 30,000 square feet of the project would be set aside for a future commercial tenant. Meany said the redevelopment project is expected to cost over $15 million. New York State Assemblywoman Donna Lepardo was joined by local leaders in a call to action on Thursday. They urged Governor Kathy Hochul to sign the direct pay bill into law to support emergency medical service providers. This was one of six press conferences held across upstate on the same topic. Many communities are struggling to provide emergency management services to their residents for a variety of reasons, including the current EMS reimbursement process. Many independent ambulance provider organizations do not receive a payment directly for the services. Instead, when a patient uses an out-of-network ambulance, the health insurer's payment for the service goes to the patient and often does not get forwarded to the ambulance provider as intended. This has resulted in significant financial losses for EMS providers. Further complicating the matter is that some consultants are under the false impression that a volunteer ambulance is a free service or intentionally take advantage of the reimbursement model for their own financial gain. The direct pay bill, which unanimously passed both houses of the legislature in June, aims to change the way EMS providers are paid. While they're able to bill insurers directly, they would not be able to pay 
payment directly. This will guarantee that providers receive the critical resources required to do their jobs safely and effectively and ensure that ambulances are available when needed. A New York man killed after police say he came at them with swords in his hands was a former elite fencer. The state attorney general of New York said that this opened a probe into the killing of Alan Weber, who died Tuesday night after being shot at his home on Long Island by a Suffolk County police officer. Suffolk County police say officers had gone into the home in response to a 9-11 call and Weber was wearing a fencing mask and had the swords when officers entered. In 1995, Weber was on the team that went to the Pan Am Games and took the silver medal in the team foil category. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290, WNBF. From the Golf Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. We're still saving the Southern Tier money at Golf Toyota. Joseph, this is Binghamton now on a Friday morning. Joined in the studio by historian Gerald Smith. Good morning, America. And all the ships at sea. Thank you. I read it right off. That's right, Walter Winchell. As as though we had the money for a teleprompter. That's how it would have sounded. Yes. You and I both had teleprompters, but No, we don't. We we imagined. That's right. We imagined. I should have been wearing like a like a fedora type hat, you know. Yes, and talking into the mic, Walter Winchell. It's great to um, speak with and and see Tom Wilbur. Yes, after all these years, he was trying to remember how many years it's been since we've spoken because I know at one point or another he interviewed me when the press had lots of reporters. I remember that. Me too. I'm going to look that up. That interview, I mean. I don't even remember why or when or how. Find it. I always need... It was often George Bosler, sometimes yeah. Tom Wilbur. Jeff Platsky has interviewed me. Uh, God, I don't remember <laughs> how many other reporters well, through the years. Well, you were... Anthony Borelli. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, um... See, I was... The only interview that I recall doing was with uh, with Katie Borelli. Yeah. Well, at the time it was Katie Sullivan. Right. Yeah. That's, and, and she did it. She uh, did yeah. a nice what, profile on basically on, on what it is I do and why. Yeah. So, and I, I enjoyed that. It was, it was the first time I met her and I, you know. Valerie's a, you know. Yeah, so many people. Yeah. Well. By the way, I, I had uh, told Tom Wilbur that uh, by the best estimate, just based on a quick Twitter search, because usually when he was on the program, I would uh, post on Twitter to tune in, hear Tom Wilbur talk about fracking, or about TCE and other contamination near the IBM site in Endicott, and a few other stories over the years. So it seemed to me that he has been on the program 
at least nine times. So today would have been at least his tenth appearance. Wow. Some in the studio, uh, some were over the phone. Sure. But um, but also it appeared that the last time he was here was in September 2015. So it's amazing if wow. true. If true, I mean, it's possible. Well, that's very possible. And because Tom hasn't been with the press for a number of years, yeah. and so he also, and this is the book we were talking about. Right. Have you seen that book? No, yeah, but so. I was listening on my way in. Yeah. Fascinating so, story. Yeah. You know, the uh, this copy actually just arrived here at the station on Thursday afternoon, so I didn't have a chance to um, read it. But I perused it last night and got got uh, the gist of it. Right. It's fascinating. It's fascinating that. Um, he spent so much time on something that came to his attention back when he was a kid yeah. around the campfire. Yeah. So, um, That's when sometimes our best stories occur. It's when we're young, we're not paying attention, but it kind of sinks into well, the back of our brain, and then it comes to the forefront. You know, now this is causing me to think back on on some of the things that happened. Uh, maybe maybe say, they're, they're playing in the bottom of Page Lake down in New Milford. Oh, no, I don't think so. That's where my grandfather's cottage don't, was. Let's start rumors. Sure. The bottomless lake. Yes. My, this this will not probably turn into a book, but it was 50 years ago this week. I remember yeah. it as though it were yesterday. Um, when I was delivering newspapers in the fabled Union District of Endicott, where the elite meet to eat... <laughs> Sounds like a restaurant commercial. Yeah, it does. So it was October 10th, 1973. It was a Wednesday afternoon, like many, where nothing much seemed to be happening. I, I of course, raced home from school so I could get my newspaper bags and deliver fresh copies of the evening press to, right. to news-hungry consumers mm. along East Main Street and Mercero Avenue. So... Of course, it goes without saying, there were probably maybe eight or ten other newspaper boys. I don't think we were allowed to have, I think it was uh, very much, I don't think it was intentionally sexist. I think it was just newspaper boys at the time. Right, right. Uh, I think girls could apply. Sure. They just didn't at that point. So I was the first one at the place where our papers got dumped off back when papers were dumped off, when they were being... Printed of all places on the Vestal Parkway. Wasn't that an odd place? Wow, a local paper. A local paper. Why, uh, locally? Hmm. Why would you do that? And offices were there too with reporters yeah. in them. And photographers. Yes. And a dark room. Graphic artists. Circulation department. Yes. Accounting. Advertising. Happy people. Happy, shiny people. Hundreds of people toiling day in and day out. That's right. Presses running hot. A city desk. Yes. Lou! Lou, get me rewrite. Yes, Lou. <laughs> Lou, put down that bottle of gin. Who's who's doing police beat today? <laughs> Memories. Don't worry, it's all coming. I'm back. trying to think of the man who did the like the 50 years ago today because he used to come in the library to use our microfilm. Yeah, yeah, microfilm. What a kick. Yeah, still around. Yeah, I remember the first time that I went to the library on Exchange Street. Yeah. And who knows, could have talked to you or someone else. Probably. How do I use this darn thing? <laughs> well, Bobby, it's not that difficult. Don't put it in upside really, down. Don't put it in backwards. Really? And be careful. Just be careful. Let's start spinning out of control. Yep. 
Really? Then Call one of us has to fix it. Really? If you need help, just ask. That's right. So anyway, October 10th, 1973, I bust open the, I think because it was Wednesday, the papers were big because that was food day. So it was a 60-page oh, yes. production, 60 big, juicy pages. And they were charging, you believe it, they were charging 15 cents. How mm -hmm. dare they? 15 yeah. cents for 60 pages of fresh, juicy news. And um, a story that had just developed early on that afternoon, Spiro Theodore Agnew decided he had to leave early. So the giant headline, and they you could tell they slapped it in uh, probably during the uh, final press run, right. Agnew resigns, and I'm looking at that headline. And remember, I'm just a kid, just a teenager. What do I know? Except I said, this is big news. <laughs> so I, I, I loaded my newspapers and delivered them with the usual profession, proficiency and professionalism on the one side of East Main Street and then crossed and went to Pat Mitchell's to reward myself, not with a one-scoop cone, but two scoops Ooh. because I said, Pat, this is a big day. Give me a double. Can you handle it, kid? <laughs> yes, he looked. Can you get home you, after you, doing you this? Remember, Pat Mitchell was sort of a father figure to a lot in Endicott. He to a lot of kids. Yeah. yeah. And he, um, he said, here you go. Here you go, Bobby. But remember, enjoy responsibly. And I said, of course, Pat. Of That's course. right. And I finished doing my newspaper route. And then I told told my mom, look at this. And she said, wow. <laughs> wow. So you delivered the news today. Oh, boy. <laughs> Paraphrasing. So yeah. Anyway, yes. Fifty years ago this week. Hey, I know what we sometimes do. Um, yes. Sometimes we ask, "Do you have uh, events that are coming up?" Do Do we do that? We're supposed to. Okay. <laughs> sometimes. Yes. We, sometimes, sometimes we go through the hours. Sometimes and say, the host forgets. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's a sad yes. commentary. Yes, I do. Because next Thursday, make sure I get it right on my calendar, which is October the nineteenth at ten o'clock. I will be speaking. Oh, no, I'm not the only one. There, We are uh, involved in an event honoring the 40th anniversary of the Johnson City Senior Center. And I know myself and Roger Luther and Kim Robinson, who's the director, will be speaking. Um, and because it, the Senior Center is on the site of Johnson Field, which was the stadium home for the triplets, the... Affiliated with the Yankees organization, we are putting in two historic markers, one by North Broad Street, the traditional blue and gold metal markers, and then one in the parking lot, protected by four bollards, so you guys can't drive over it. We have one which is a replica of home plate in the exact location of home plate. And those are being sponsored by the Broome County Stroke Society, and I can now announce Late as of Saturday, that Di uh, Diana Munson and Michael Munson, the widow and son of Thurman Munson of the Yankees, and a triplet in the last season of 1968 will be our honored guest and will be speaking that day. Which is quite, a, because Thurman and Diana got uh, uh, engaged here in our area. And the rumor is... The apocryphal story told me by the owners that they did it at Red's Kettle Inn. That's what I was waiting for. I didn't yep. know it for for a fact. Well, but I, the I, people there told me that's what that's where it occurred, and that would make sense because, of course, Thurman would have been living right around the stadium, and a lot of the triplets went over to Red's Kettle Inn to enjoy 
So having uh, the occasional hot pie. Yes, yeah, a, a true hot pie. Yeah, not that not pizza. one of those pizza things. Go. Let's let's go. To, you know what? It occurs to me, and now decades later, it probably would have been a good idea. Actually, it could still happen, so I shouldn't say it on the air because somebody will appropriate this great idea. Come up with a national chain of, say, oh, several hundred, maybe even as many as 2,000, like, family-style restaurants mm. and call it Hot Pie Hut. And you come up with, like, uh, a distinctive blue design right. and an interesting uh, and yet... R- roof un- line? Yeah. yeah. Un- unforgettable roof line. Right. And you put these Hot Pie Huts, like, in... in I, think, I think they sort of did that already. No, they didn't do hot pie. No, they hot. didn't. No, they did so pizza hot. Yeah, if, right. if those litigious attorneys were, I don't know if it's still owned by Yum Brands Pizza Hut. Was that was that part of the Yum? Oh wow, they own a hard, lot of things. Well, it's hard to tell yeah. who owns what anymore. For all for all I know, they're owned by TikTok, but I don't know. But people in this area would enjoy that. Yeah, well, yeah, you know. But that's going to occur on next Thursday. Mm-hmm. Which happens to be the speaker's birthday. So I get a great big celebration on my birthday, which is good. And then uh, just to remind... By the way, I just verified, yes, still owned by Yum. 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 Whoever came up with that name deserves a bonus. Just a reminder that I'm doing the Floral Park Cemetery Tour on the 29th for SUNY Broom Continuing Ed. It's $39 a person, and if it's from 2 to 4 that day, no matter what the weather... And we will trudge through the cemetery with lots of stories. Some of them may be spooky. Because it's always before Halloween. So those are my two events for October. And last reminder that I'm doing, who shot JFK assassination in American culture for Sony Broom continuing it. And that starts on Thursday, November 2nd. Runs for five Thursdays through December 7th, exclusive of November 23rd, which happens to be Thanksgiving. And that's $89 a person to take. That's 10 hours of course instruction from moi. So that should keep me busy and out of trouble, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, that's why... Things are always afoot. Well, that's why... I consider myself a breaking news reporter. That's so right. In the, there could be breaking news. In the unlikely event, you do something... Something new. Untoward. Yes. Or... Or toward. Leap toward a new career or something. You know, who knows? Talk show host. Ooh. Ooh. How much does it pay? <laughs> well, remember... I'm waiting for the check from this place. Say, yeah, well... And remember... <laughs> one thing I'll say... When it comes to, shall we say, inadequate compensation, yes, you you experience the joys of that sort of compensation package I, as county and city history. I was a public servant, and <laughs> and um, and um, I just forgot his name. Um, oh, did a profile of me. Uh, went up to the Albany Times Union. Um, um, oh, Jim, Jim O'Donnell. Jim O'Donnell. Oh. Sorry, Jim. Who said, you know, you're one of the few public servants who actually likes to wait on the public. And I went, well, well yeah. And there's another guy. I mean, we were talking well, yes. with, with Tom Wilbur about uh, the laws. So, so many of, of the, the good people, reporters, I mean, right. Including, I mean, uh, fairly recently with Anthony Pirelli. Right. But so many people uh, either who left 
for their own reasons because you have to make sometimes tough right. decisions that are, are best for yourself and your family, but also those uh, who've retired, including sure. Jeff Platsky and uh, George Basler, uh, you know, and and well, you mentioned Valerie Zell, yeah, and you know, so many of the people just who are Ke- still around. I just saw Keith George's name, and I kept thinking, oh, I haven't seen Keith in a long time. He used to come in to use our microfilm. And what a court reporter! See, that's yes. back when they had court See? reporters. George was the education, education reporter. reporter, and court and reporter. Tom Wilbur, for many years, was the environmental reporter. Yes. So, if something came up yes. with with uh, polluted water, polluted right. air, or for the decade-long fracking saga, Tom yes. Wilbur was the go-to guy. So, yeah, you the, know, that was the police beat reporter, uh, you, you, Jim Wright. Yes. Jim Wright. Uh, oh, also, whose name isn't brought up often enough, Steve Levine, oh. police reporter. Yes. Forgot him. Yes. Legendary. Yes. I'm um, trying to think. Of course, columnist Dave Rossi, who, well, yes. we, fortunately, and I am I know people think that, you know, this is, this is a minor thing, but to people like me, because the paper still will honor... The tradition of his back to school column every September. Oh yes, you know, and yeah. you know, some people say, "All right, well, after a few decades, we get it." You know, it's uh, the, uh, summer has come to an end. It's fall. The kids are going to school, and everybody's uh, getting set for going, getting serious again. We get it, you know. And yet, that is, it's not. Well, actually, I think it is on the same level of, of um, yes, Virginia. The, Virginia, yes, there Virginia. Is a Santa Claus. That is that is our. I mean, obviously, the yes, Virginia. There is a Santa Claus that became uh, nationally known. Oh, or yes, even world uh, worldly known. But the the Dave Rossi column that now appears pretty much like clockwork as school starts in September. Yes, that is a something for us to treasure. Yeah. You know, I'm and I'm lucky enough to have been around when Tom Cawley was still writing. That's right, and I I remember reading his stuff. Oh yes, I mean, first of all, I mean, not only did he do he he punched out uh, on a regular basis for many years uh, columns. Sometimes just you know, depending on on what era. Sometimes it was sort of uh, right. political gossip right. or stuff. You know, political business and stuff around town. Sometimes it seemed like. Um, you know, sort of stream of consciousness type stuff. Yes. And, and yet he was doing that and usually at the same time also reporting out news. I mean, he, yes. he went down, oh, after, sadly, after Edwin Link's son died oh, yes. in Florida at the bottom of of the ocean yes. in a, a, a tragedy there, which also happened just over 50 years ago. I was going to say, Tom same. Cawley yep. actually went down to Florida because there were there was uh I don't recall if it was thirty six hours or whatever when they there was a rescue yes. operation. Well um the younger Mr Link and a and a colleague were trapped in a submersible and sadly uh the young Mr Link didn't survive. But Tom Cawley was down there reporting in Florida and yes. interviewing yep. and, and let's face it that's a tough story to cover because he was familiar with 
Edward sure. Link and, and the family. Yeah, and <clears throat> and it's so sensitive at a time like that for reporters. And the Links weren't talking to any reporters, understandably, because right. of the circumstances. Except they did speak briefly with Tom Cawley right. because they and, knew him. Yeah, because they had a rapport. Yeah. So anyway, enough enough of this bantering about history. Because now we take an important break for announcements and then more bantering about history, including a focus on something dealing with defense and espionage and spies and good stuff. The spy who loved us. (laughs) Sounds like a movie. Ooh, John by John Le Carre. Tune in if you're a fan of the international That's business right. machines. That's right. Especially in an era when IBM when didn't stand for mainframes no. or computer service contracts. But loose lips sink ships. ships. It's like we've worked together. I think so. <laughs> I was going to say, Tom's here nine times. This is my 120th. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, well. who's counting? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. The fun... And the knowledge continue through WNBF at 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, online at WNBF.com. WNBF, live and local on a Friday morning. I'm Bob Joseph with historian Gerald Smith. One thing that people who have lived in this area a long time and think they know everything about IBM, International Business Machines, one thing they may not realize is uh, for a time, IBM in Endicott and at other locations around the U.S., was very, very heavily involved in the nation's defense. Oh, yes. And from the time of World War II, and indeed some aspects of it even today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you think about it, uh, in the early portion of the, what was evolving to become the computer era. Right. You know, they, they started with, um, calculating machines and all all sorts of of stuff and and certainly their people including a lot at the Endicott site Mm -hmm. managed to develop some amazing innovations and they because of the research they did and the patents they earned uh, a lot of what they were working on had applications of course commercial applications but also important military applications for the United States and one thing that sometimes I think may be overlooked, say in the 40s, there was a lot of secrecy and a lot of security involved at all IBM locations, especially what existed in the area of North Street, the North Street oh, Manufacturing yes. Complex. Because, for example, Building 42 on the corner of North and McKinley, I believe, actually went up in six months' time, and it was done so because the Defense Department needed IBM to do certain jobs, contracts. And so IBM actually received an award 
from the Defense Department with generals in presence presenting them. Building 43 went up for the same reason. Um, IBM was involved with not just their counting, but they're using that to calculate and coming up with devices to monitor troop and people movements during the war. And then later on, they were involved in developing guidance systems for airplanes and submarines. Now, they couldn't talk about it. Um, you know, you couldn't come home and say, what did you do today to daddy? Well, I devised this thing. No, because it... Well, in its own way, it sort of reminds me of, of some of the stuff that was going on, say, out around Area 51. Yes. When... Something else was under development, but also critical to the war effort. Yes. People who are working on aspects of, of the nuclear program could never talk about what they did. Everything was, yep, went to work today. That's it. Going to work tomorrow, if they could even say that. Right. And I mean, and this this was a heavy aspect of IBM development here especially in the Endicott area, but as you said, elsewhere. Then later on, that that carries on well past World War II. Uh, and then, of course, you've got IBM Glendale, then IBM Owego, which is now Lockheed Martin, which does the same thing. Because Bob called me about the show, and I was relating that we were putting up a Southern Tier in Space exhibit when we were having the International Space station trailers at the library we did a component and Lockheed Martin was very generous to loan us a huge model of the space shuttle but as soon as we go in there because they were working on the new line of presidential helicopters we were stopped we had a we had a renter van which is not a good sign yeah that that's that's the first thing, first thing at a secure facility guys, that gets the attention of yeah. of of security oh guys in a rental, rental truck, truck right and we made it 50 feet in had to stop and they said you follow us and there's a police car with two guys with guns that we followed right in and then they actually walked us into the building because there was a secure area nearby and we couldn't see it or look at it or stay near it and then it's same thing happened we borrowed a space shuttle window from Corning and it was the same procedure we had to meet with them and they said you can only come in this hallway you can't don't look down there because the, these companies IBM especially were, were so involved in defense department contracts to devise devise apparatus, applications, later on computer software that tracked, created guidance systems. You know, people forgot that GE, that was in Westover for decades, never made a single light bulb. My father-in-law was there, couldn't tell us what he worked on, uh, and you didn't ask him. Um, it was that kind of link aviation was the same way. I mean, you think even Universal Instruments was involved in some aspects of this. And in the 1940s, the early 40s, at one point, Thomas J. Watson uh, was in Binghamton and he gave a speech about IBM's contributions right. to the war effort. And he said at, at that point, more than 50% of IBM's production was related to yes. defense work. Yes. And and certainly uh, at the time very little 
that he could uh, be specific about. I'm looking at one photo, and this is in the Binghamton Press, September 17th, 1942. It's a very large photo showing IBM's new $2.7 million munitions factory. This is Endicott. Right. Munitions factory. Yes. Buildings are still there today. This four-story building occupies a full city block on Endicott's north side where a score of homes, stores, and service stations stood before March 1st. Remember, this is mid-September, so right. something like that happened in a period of six months. Homes, yes. and stores, and service stations were removed to build the $2.7 million munitions factory. No other building in the Triple Cities was ever erected half so quickly. While workers are still on construction details at the far end, as shown in the picture, the nearest section has already started war production. That's how fast it was. Yes. Yes. And in the same... I mean, and that's, that building's still standing. Yes, it's still there. And the same newspaper, and by it's, the way. It's, oh, yeah. It's, well, the newspaper's sort of standing, too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you, you imagine that. Whole neighborhoods, whole things cleared, everything recreated, pile driving, putting in basement levels, upper floors, four-story, city block size building in six months. I mean, we've been talking about the parking garage by Boscovs and how long is it taking and how long it will take and what it will look like when it's done and it's like two years off or whatever. And this is the same size and it's done in six months. Below the picture of the new Endicott munitions factory at the IBM complex, at the same time in Westover, town of Union, 600 yes. Main Street, rapidly taking shape as workmen rush construction is this new war production plant of Remington Rand, Rand at Westover. Yes. The completed building will be one of the largest of its kind in the Triple Cities. It contains virtually no vital metals. Remember, and we learned this after the massive flooding Flood. in September 2011. Made out of I, wood. Yeah, and I believe the word was, and I don't know that it was ever corroborated, there was more wood in that plant than any other building east of the Mississippi. Yes. I mean, it was an incredible... It was the one. largest wooden, completely wooden structure, wood supports, wood floors, wood walls, east of the Mississippi. Because I was in there. Now, they did have a brick veneer front to it, but Remington Rand, which normally made typewriters, converted to the war effort, and that's Defense Plant Fifty Nine, yep. Air Force Plant Air Number Fifty Nine. Pl- yep. And um, I took when I was there again to borrow something. They were very generous to, to loan some stuff. The guy said, "Have you ever been here?" No. He said, "By the way, there's two walks around the way it was configured." There was an inner walk and an outer walk. The outer walk was a mile around. And that plant, that plant was 600,000 square feet. Yes. So to put this in context, Wegmans now is about 135,000 square so feet. So you could, five, you could five times fit nearly five Wegmans inside yes. what was the... People didn't realize because from the front, oh, it's a big building. No, yeah. that thing went back. That was... All the way back to the fabled Gaudi station. Yes. Nysag's power plant. But I remember being in there going, this was enormous. And and it, it was all wood. Gorgeous wood floors at the time. And sad 
and you may have seen some of the photos after yes, the flood of what that wood looked like yeah. after. And I can't remember if they guesstimated. I don't know if they estimated it was 10 million gallons of water. Who knows how much water the it 2011 flooded in. flood. 2006, they got some minimal damage. 2011 it sat in there for days, and the floor just warped. It buckled. It, it basically buckled. And people, the employees had... Um, tower desktop computers but the towers were stored on the floor under the desk that they give their desk more room for working i've and heard so many stories about the restoration efforts i mean some yes some stuff could never be saved some stuff that by all rights should have been probably destroyed a lot of the then bae systems workers did yes. heroic efforts yes they did and they had to trudge in into uh uh, no. A post-flood mess, a morass. I've to, talked to a couple yeah. of who said they were just in tears. Well, and BAE systems learned a lot from that experience yes. because they, as it turns out, and this is true, I think, of most entities, till you experience something that catastrophic, you don't have sufficient backup plans in place. No. And they, well, after that, they learned an important and lesson. They, again, like Lockheed Martin, such do a lot of important defense work. And and develop parts of helicopters. In fact, they've actually they're, they're they're a competitor of Lockheed Martin, and yet they have actually worked together on projects along with Sikorsky and a couple of others. Well, the defense industry, look, the defense in- industry now is so consolidated yes. that yeah, you could be effectively competing on certain programs, right. com- competing for major contracts, and yet because of the need for certain parts and certain right. avi- avionic systems and other other things, you also, at the same time, will find many of your people collaborating. Absolutely. Yep. But you notice BAE is now located in the former IBM factories. Well, and thank goodness yes. that space was available. Yes. That was perhaps the one silver lining looking back to... IBM downsizing so much uh, during the 80s and 90s that there was sufficient space to move 1,300 workers who had been working out of 600 Main Street and Westover over to the now Huron complex and and carrying on their research and coming up with great products. So it's, but there again, they continue the trend in that complex of doing Defense Department work. Now, speaking of secrecy, one of the things that appears in this September 1942 edition of the Binghamton Press below that photo of 600 Main Street showing um, a still under construction building Mm. that eventually was used by GE and then uh, Lockheed Martin and Martin Marietta I, and yeah, BAE Systems. That you know, you have to get your, to keep track of the timeline. Which one came first? But but uh, in above the regular caption, italicized publication of the two top photos. That also includes the new IBM munitions plant. Publication of the photos has been approved by the Office of Censorship in Washington. So yes. before the Binghamton Press could run yes. those pictures of those buildings. In Endicott and in Westover, they had to be submitted to the Office of Censorship. Absolutely. Yeah. As they, they said, loose lips sink ships. But because that was, we were involved in a world war that was unlike any other. Stay tuned. Yeah. I mean. We don't know. Well, we don't know. No. And the world is very tenuous right well, now. Well, you know. 
And things Let's put it this way. A week ago, Friday at this time, I thought things were going rel- relatively well, and then less than 24 hours later, things changed. And who knows how far it will expand. Yeah, and who knows what the situation will be a week from today. Right. In World War One, we got involved because the U.S. was involved in what we called entangling alliances, where if, well, if you attack this, then I have to attack you, and then it just expanded out. And the Middle East has been a source of contention for thousands of years. Uh, that's where it all began. And going to one book that people rely on, that's where it's going to end. So uh, uh, we will stay tuned on that one. But maybe IBM had to come back into, hey, you never know. Yeah, who knows? And a third photo. This is just a classic page. You know, you I know which one it is. Is this the with crowd the, with the sepia? No, this pictures? is the crowd. This is oh, this is huge. The people. More than four thousand yes. international business machines employees and other residents jammed North Street between McKinley and Adams Avenue this morning. And it says, big outdoor pep rally spurs Endicott war production. They were there to hear Lieutenant General William Knudsen, War Department production head, review the production accomplishments of the last few months and demand an unceasing effort to give United Nations armies the arms they need to carry the battle to the enemy. Mm. He said the production job is about half done. In this whole swath, if you can imagine, say if you're driving now on North Street and Endicott between McKinley and Hayes Avenue, there was a sea of people, 4,000 people filled the streets to hear the lieutenant general talk about the war effort. And I bet every one of those IBM employees is wearing a suit and a dark tie. There well, it was a few women in there. This too. was September, so it was a warm day. They were allowed not; they didn't have to wear their jackets. Uh, but okay. They're all wearing their white shirts, oh, requisite white shirts and dark tie. Oh, and did I say that all of their hair is very short? Short. Yes. Very short. They could almost play for the New York Yankees. It's that, it was that type <laughs> yes. of dress code. Yes. So the bottom line is, though, in, in getting back to the security, there were armed security guards. Yes. There were dogs. Yes. There were weapons. There were guns. I mean, you might not know. Let's face it. Say, at, at sensitive federal facilities, even today, you know that they have a lot of firepower. It's just yes. not visible. And only when needed. It's there. It's there, and you don't push it. And some people in Endicott, who lived in Endicott at the time, um, some people were actually worried that something bad was going to happen just because of Endicott's importance in the war effort. I've often used the statistic that Binghamton was number seven on the bombing list for the Soviet Union, that if we went... If they wanted to drop the bomb, we'd be the seventh target. I later found out from people involved in the Sister Cities project that I was mistaken. Binghamton was number four because of the number of defense plants here involved in heavy, and I do mean heavy, involvement in contracts. As I said, IBM, well, at that point, Remington Rand, uh, Link Aviation, Universal Instruments. Uh, there were others involved. I mean, certainly, of course, Endicott Johnson was making boots. Drybacks were making all the 
one-piece uniforms for the military. That's where Stowe Manufacturing later was located. Uh, this area was heavy, heavy involved in the World War II effort, making, and as you said, they're making munitions. Uh, we're making carbines and propellers and all sorts of parts. But they were also developing, as I said, the guidance systems for submarines and airplanes. So we're watching troop movements of the Axis and the Allies. Remarkable times. Jerry Smith, yes. thank you for filling in some of the missing links to yeah. that era here in the Triple Cities. And maybe, just maybe, I'll be back on November. You will. Okay. Stay tuned. Okay. This is News Radio, WNBF, and WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290 AM, WNBF Binghamton. Now on 92.1 FM, W221EJ Binghamton, a town square media station. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Mostly sunny today, high near 60. Mostly cloudy tonight, slight chance of rain, low around 44. Cloudy Saturday with rain likely, high near 52. Sunday will be partly sunny with a slight chance of showers and a high near 56. Meal services at the Downtown Salvation Army Center have resumed after Binghamton Mayor Jared Cram requested they be suspended due to safety concerns. Police were called twice last week to respond to fights that broke out near the site at 131 Washington Street. A dispute on October 5th was said to have involved the use of a knife and rocks among men who were visiting the Salvation Army facility while breakfast was being served. A less serious altercation involving teenagers reportedly occurred the previous day. Graham contacted a Salvation Army official after he was informed of the disputes. He said he wanted the agency to develop a detailed plan of action to address the problems. City Hall and Binghamton police officials discussed the issues with Salvation Army representatives on Tuesday. They agreed to implement new measures, including offering breakfast inside the center. In an email statement to WNBF News, Deputy Mayor Megan Hyman said the measure will include changing the way clients enter and exit the building. A Salvation Army spokesperson said following the discussions with the major mayor and neighboring business owners, the agency implemented a revamped meal service on Thursday. In a statement, he wrote, while dinner service will continue to be of the grab-and-go variety in the short term, we are also exploring ways to move our dinner service indoors. Several dozen people may eventually move into a century-old former high school building on Main Street in Johnson City. Village Mayor Martin Meany said a developer has outlined plans to transform the three-story building at 435 Main Street into a residential complex. The old building was used by students for several decades until the new Johnson City High School opened in 1970. The property was acquired by McKilligan Industrial Supply for $200,000 in 1975. It was transformed into the Nypen Trade Center with space rented to various entities, including businesses and churches. Meany told WNBF News that the developer Mark Lane hopes to turn the old school into a 62-unit apartment building. The mayor said the plan calls for 50 market-rate apartments and 12 affordable housing units. 
He said 30,000 square feet of the project would be set aside for a future commercial tenant. Meany said the redevelopment project is expected to cost over $15 million. New York State Assemblywoman Donna Lopardo was joined by local leaders in a call to action on Thursday. They urged Governor Kathy Hochul to sign the direct pay law bill into law to support emergency medical service providers. This was one of six press conferences held across upstate on the same topic. Many communities are struggling to provide emergency management services to their residents for a variety of reasons, including the current EMS reimbursement process. Many independent ambulance provider organizations do not receive a payment directly for the services. Instead, when a patient uses an out-of-network ambulance, the health insurer's payment for the service goes to the patient and often does not get forwarded to the ambulance provider as intended. This has resulted in significant financial losses for EMS providers. Further complicating the matter is that some consultants are under the false impression that a volunteer ambulance is a free service or intentionally take advantage of the reimbursement model for their own financial gain. The direct pay bill, which unanimously passed both houses of the legislature in June, aims to change the way EMS providers are paid. While they're able to bill insurers directly, they would not be able to pay payment directly. This will guarantee that providers receive the critical resources required to do their jobs safely and effectively and ensure that ambulances are available when needed. A New York man killed after police say he came at them with swords in his hands was a former elite fencer. The state attorney general of New York says that this opened a probe into the killing of Alan Weber of who died Tuesday night after being shot at his home in Long Island by a Suffolk County police officer. Suffolk County police say officers had gone into the home in response to a 9-11 call and Weber was wearing a fencing mask and had the swords when officers entered. In 1995, Weber was on the team that went to the Pan Am Games and took the silver medal in the team foil category. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290, WNBF. From the Golf Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. Reserve your new Toyota at Galt Toyota. Joseph, it's Friday morning, and the phone lines now are open. 607-772-1290. Love to hear what's on your mind right here on News Radio WNBF. Down, and that probably is true. 
but we can neither confirm nor deny the assertion. We can't corroborate what they were singing. I hope your week has been good so far. I think we've managed to cover a lot of ground. My thanks to historian Jerry Smith and also journalist and author Tom Wilbur. I think we packed at least two or three shows worth of content into one show. Not a bad show when you think about it. Not a bad show, if I do say so myself. So we touched on uh, the higher um, utility rates. And again, with the caveat, no one's really to blame. It's just the high price of everything. And I think it's reasonable to expect that the price of energy will continue to soar. So set aside as much money as you can so you'll be able to afford the energy you need, especially for your new electric vehicles. We also touched on that. Eh, let's not talk about that. It's, it's, too, it's too unsettling. Yeah, we touched on it, but it's too unsettling. Let's take a call. You know, we don't want to we don't want to disturb people forty seven minutes before the weekend starts. Good morning, WNBF. You're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? This is Rena. I'm calling from Indica. Yeah, what's going on there? Is there any well, any kind of uh political stuff going on in the village? Well, I just wanted to let you know the people of the village of Indica know that on October seventeenth. Um, we're going to have a town hall um, at the village hall across the street from the village from 6 to 8. Bring your questions. Uh, they will be answered by our candidate, Larry, running for mayor, Larry Coppola, and our two trustees, Shannon Sharp and Kevin Kreiner. All right. And bring all your questions, and they'll all be answered for you. All right. And again, uh, when will it be, and where is it going to be? It's uh, October 17th. At the visitor center in any account. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your calling in with the information. So, if people have have any questions for the candidates, did you realize election day is now less than four weeks away? It's less than uh, less than three weeks. I can't, well, I that's right. I well, November seventh, and then right. somebody told me that that early voting, I think, is going to start maybe October twenty eighth, something like that. Correct. I mean, it's it's yep. it's fast approaching. It sure is, and we need to get the people in Indica knowing uh, knowing our candidates because they're great. Uh, and I know Larry uh, Coppola is for getting more police foot patrols in the village of Indica. Uh, he does not want to get rid of the Indica police. Wait, he doesn't want. Wait, that. he doesn't want the Indica police department to be taken over. I'm saying I'm going to say it my way. Larry Coppola wants to get more police patrol in the village of Indicott. He does not want to get rid of the Indicott police because that's the rumor I hear that's going around. That is absolutely false. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate your call. I hope people could come and they could ask him point blank and he'll give them the answer. All right. Well, I appreciate your, I appreciate your uh, calling in with that information. I hope you have a great weekend. 
and that you as well, Bob. And thank you for taking my call. Take oh, care. You're welcome. And it's eleven fifteen. WNBF. We serve America. Whatever is good about America, that's what we stand for. Six zero seven 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 two twelve ninety is the number. The website's WNBF.com. I am toying. There are two stories that I will be writing this afternoon. I've been reporting on on a bunch of stories over the last week or so, and I'm not sure at the moment what stories will wind up on the website this afternoon, but I can tell you that uh, we have a couple couple of really good things that are in the pipeline. There is, believe it or not, believe it or not, there is another new business that has just popped up in Endicott, and I think that'll be one of the stories. So sometimes people say, Bob, why don't we have more good news about businesses? Well, I think that'll be one of the stories. A new business that has just opened in Endicott, so that's probably going to be on WNBF.com this afternoon. Of course, that all depends on news flow. If there's breaking news, obviously that story might might have to wait while I go out and cover something that's more urgent. Eleven seventeen. Good morning. You're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? Johan, Endicott. Oh, I I've heard of you. How are how are things on Grant Avenue? Oh, uh, things are doing quite well, actually. Uh, thanks for asking. We got a busy workflow going in, and uh, so for that, I'm happy for. Well, I drove by there this morning. I mean, I was not on Grant Avenue, but I was on East Main Street traveling at precisely 30 miles per hour. And I saw you wave. Uh, you know, you don't think that people <laughs> notice that, but I did see you put down your window and wave and Thank you. yell, hey, Johan, good morning. Yeah. So that was Remember that fun. one time, the, the last time that, that you and I actually, I think, talked face-to-face, we were out there, we were covering, it didn't turn out to be much of a, much of a story, but at one point I thought we were going to have a, an interesting news story. But you actually got to see me, a, an actual journalist in the 21st century, working and covering what, what could have been breaking news. Well, you know, I'm glad that I did because up to that point I was very skeptical about your job, but you proved every part of my doubts to be, uh, you know, unfounded. And I saw your journalism expertise and technique in full effect, and I really was impressed. Well, you noticed, getting pictures <laughs> from all angles, video, uh, asking questions of people who weren't otherwise um, in the middle of something. What you noticed, did you notice my tactic of being polite and not interrupting people who were, shall we say, in the middle of something? I, I thought that counts. I think I get some bonus points as a reporter for being polite and knowing when not to interrupt. I put, I did check I did check that box in my uh, review of your job uh, performance. So yeah, my sure, my my quiet. review on Yelp. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I think I got a five star review. Yeah, journalist seems dedicated and to boot. He was polite and didn't interrupt people who were in the middle of doing doing official business. So so I gave him credit. He he's not like some of those reporters who are too aggressive. He was just aggressive <laughs> enough. 
to get the to get the true story, and I appreciate yep. that. <laughs> What's on your mind so, this morning, John? Well, I was hoping to talk to Jerry Smith, but it became apparent that it was the uh, the Bob and Jerry. Yeah, show it was like a Saturday morning cartoon today, where, right. where the, the two consumed. yeah two guys. <laughs> you know, it was just like two guys talking talking among the uh, between themselves. With yeah, if you want to listen to us, okay, but otherwise we 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 were. By the way, I as Jerry uh, left the studio, I said. You know what I think? Um, next month, when you're on on November 11th, why don't we uh, perhaps continue sort of some of the stuff we were discussing on today's program, and yet make sure that we open up the phone lines to get people to uh, either ask questions or, or share some of their thoughts. I agree, but I think that's not lost. I got to call in this last hour. This is what I wanted to talk to him and you about. The news has been reporting about the Nipen Trade Center's new ownership and their um, proposed plans uh, for their use. And it was also detailed in the reporting that it was once owned by McKilligan Industries or Industrial. And I personally knew Mike McKilligan. Um, he was a neighbor of mine, and he also owned a school nearby to where I live, the J. Ralph Ingalls School. And uh, I thought the community would like to know that that already has been very much repurposed. Um, he left it to the Nanticoke Valley Historical Society, which I thought Jerry Smith would be interested in. And they have been hosting a number of events um, after they had a massive rummage sale because Mr. McKilligan liked to collect things and uh, – kind of got some more space available and they've had art shows and performances and do uh, intend to have many more community centered events there. So you might want to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on at the J Ralph Ingalls school in Maine. Oh, thank you for mentioning. And um, I'm not sure that I ever met Mr. McKilligan. I do know I think I recall that I, over the years, had spoken with him on the phone a couple of times, but I'm not sure that we ever spoke face-to-face. And uh, I just uh, I looked up to see that he died nearly two years ago. It was November yeah. 2021 that uh, that Mike McKilligan died at the age of 83. Yeah, it was unfortunate because he otherwise was in really good health, I think, whatever it was came upon him on unexpectedly, but he done, did a lot of work in the community. Um, a lot of, uh, footage that he took on old VHS tapes that I was privy to. I actually helped him. My sons helped him in years past because we were near neighbors to him. Um, so a nice man. Um, he actually ta- taught at J Ralph Ingalls back when it was a functioning school. So he had a lot of history in the community there. Well, now that I'm looking at at the obituary, uh, yeah, he was he was uh, uh, involved in a lot more things than I ever realized before he became known for McKilligan Industrial Supply, which I believe, it, according to the obituary, uh, was founded in 1963. He um, had a, he went to SUNY Oswego, also had a, a Master's of Science in Business from Harper College back when it was SUNY yeah. Binghamton, uh, an industrial arts teacher for the Maine Andwell School District, 
Um, many successful businesses in the basement of the family house he built. And, oh, in 2005 was Grand Marshal of the St. Patrick's Parade in Binghamton. And also, oh, Justice of the Peace, town councilman in Maine. And um, he, charter member of the, the Maine Historical Society. The amount of things this man was able to accomplish, you wonder how he ever got any sleep. Because I would be over at the school helping him at nine ten o'clock at night because of my proximity. Uh, others as well in the community. Uh, um, and he was there early in the morning as well as at his other properties and uh, endeavors. So the guy never stopped. He had a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah, well, I appreciate your calling in to share more of of his life and also the information about the uh, J. Ralph Ingalls School. I have to say, um, I stopped by the old Johnson City High School several weeks ago when it uh, was when it developed that uh, these apartments are are planned for the building, and I hadn't been inside there for about eight years. I went, I remember on September 7th, 2015, which was Labor Day that year, I went to all three of our high schools, the uh, century-old high schools in the Triple Cities, because that was the day, it was exactly 100 years to the day that those schools, Union Endicott High School on East Main Street, then the Johnson City School on, on Main Street in the village, and also Binghamton High School, a little further to the east. All three of those high school buildings opened on the same day in 1915. And I was at really? each of those three schools, even though it was a holiday. And I took pictures on the 100th birthday of each school building. Now, obviously, because it was a holiday, I could not get inside to the uh, schools in Endicott and Binghamton, which were still actively used as schools, but I took pictures outside. And then I went to 435 Main Street, which, of course, was the Nipen Trade Center. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, I wonder if I can go inside. Probably can't because it's a holiday, but because there were uh, tenants who um, needed to be able to have access, the, the building was accessible and I was able to walk around a bit and just go through some of the hallways and take pictures of some of the lockers and the old main office and in its own way, even though I didn't go to that school um, for high school, I went to UE, in its own way it did have sort of um, a feel like uh, the Endicott High School did and, well, and appropriately yeah. because they, they were built at the same time. And J. Ralph Engel still has that feel. There's still there's still classrooms with chalkboards with chalk writing on it, lots of desks. It's also, ooh, now that we're getting towards the end of the month, it's also recorded on some national haunted registries. So maybe Mr. Smith can look into that and see what he can come up with. Yeah, well, now... Now that you mentioned it, I, I would stay tuned in the next uh, seven to ten days for some sort of story at WNBF.com about the school because, okay. yeah, you you, uh, you gave me a great idea for, for a story and to let people know a little bit about the history as well as, you know, what's now going on with the Nanticoke Valley Historical Society. Yeah, um, if you need any, he's welcome, he's happy for me to mention his name. Gordy Gottlieb is one of the principal people at the North Valley, uh, not North Valley, I 
strike that. Uh, the Nanticoke Valley Historical Society. Um, uh, and he would be a good contact to uh, maybe even get in the school and things of that nature. Yeah, I have to get in touch with him because, um, yeah, now I'm, I mean, it's, I think it's a great news story, but you know me by now. I'm, I'm curious and just to satisfy my own curiosity. So it would be to, uh, for personal gratification as well as a story that'd be interesting to, uh, our listeners and also to people who read stories on our website. All right. Well, thanks for your time. I just wanted to put that in because it was something Jerry may probably already knows about, but maybe if not, it would be interesting for him as well. I bet he knows now because he's probably listening as he uh, motors home. Who knows? Maybe, can, maybe he's going he out to Endicott to get a donut. Who brought it to WNBF first? Just remember that. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> our, our, our Endicott bureau chief. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you. You have a good one. Thank you. It's eleven twenty-eight. WNBF. This is community radio. I know some people say, "Why are you allowed to do this in twenty twenty-three? Who gave you permission to talk about the local community?" It's not done that way anymore. What is all this talk about <laughs> knowing the history of the area and the community you serve? What What's your angle? My angle is 92.1. No, that's my frequency, Kenneth. 1290 AM and, of course, always available on the WNBF app. WNBF Binghamton. Bob Joseph, Binghamton now on your Friday morning. We return to the phone. Susan in Binghamton, you're on the air. How are you? Yep. Number in my phone so long, it didn't even have the 607 prefix. I had to add that. Yeah, I don't like having to dial 10 digits for a local I don't, call. But anyway, I only... I was just getting out of the shower and I heard what you were saying about WNBS. I really love the, uh, what do you call it? App, is it? Um, on my phone because I get all these little blurbs during the day. Of, a lot of them are from you of things, new things that are going on with good, bad or whatever, but, uh, it's, it's appreciated. I don't listen as often as I should, but, uh, you gotta be around Bob. You keep us honest. Well, I, I try. I wish I could clone myself because if we could have, uh, if WNBF News could have three or four additional reporters on any given day to, to cover more of what's going on in the triple cities, we would, we would, uh, be able to, as they say, super serve our, our audience. But, but yeah, I'm committed on air and, and also with the website to doing as much original reporting every day as possible. Yeah. You know, I just, heard on my phone, I don't know how these things come up, the coffee shop that um, Roger made the uh, advertisement for, the one downtown. Right. Yeah. Uh, how is Roger doing? He's doing very well. Actually, uh, oddly enough, and thank you for asking, he, uh, he was in the station uh, both yesterday and Wednesday. He's getting set for 
another Binghamton University basketball season. So he's oh yeah he's looking forward to that. And don't get me wrong, he he really is enjoying his retirement, but he also still loves keeping keeping a, a foot in in the uh, sports broadcasting sphere. And uh, he's he's excited uh, not only for the uh, upcoming basketball live coverage here on News Radio WNBF, but also the coaches show. And we will have more coming up soon with Roger Neal. He'll be uh, he'll be on the program to give us a, a preview of what'll be going on this fall. Oh, I'd like to talk to him. Um, say hello to him for me, please. We've been friends for a long, long time. Well, he's. He's, uh, he, I've, I've seen him a few times over the last several months, quite often at, at some of the baseball games. Um, and he, uh, now that he has, uh, freedom to pick and choose what, what he does, finally, after decades, he's, he's able to, uh, do some, do some, uh, fun things that it, it just wasn't possible for him to do when he was, Seemed to me that he was almost always on call when he was working full time oh, for yeah. WNBF. Like almost twenty four hours a day. I understand retiring the advantage of it. I still volunteer at the hospital, but I'm not obligated to, you know, go there to work anymore. It's nice when you can kind of uh, name your own uh, hours and times. Absolutely. But uh, I do miss Roger, and I miss seeing you. So. Uh, you all take care. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great weekend. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. 11.37 at WNBF. And we have, in fact, been here serving the community nearly a century. How is it? How is it possible that WNBF, a brand, and we haven't changed the call letters, I think maybe for a few days or a few weeks when they were starting the station in Endicott, Union District, over on West Main Street, just west of the Chop House. I think maybe they had some other call letters. No, I think it was WNBF, February 1927, so 96 and a half years. How is that even possible? Oh, yeah, and how is it even possible that I've been part of the WNBF family for as long as I have? I was part of the family before I was hired here. I was listening to WNBF when I was uh, a lad listening to the transistor radio. Let's go back to the phones at 1138. Good morning. You're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? I assume that's me, Joan from Bingo. Morning, Joan. Good morning. Well, I figured I searched high and low and just happened to run into the fact I was over to the Kirkwood Plaza. And they have installed 12 electric charging stations. Oh, a Tesla supercharger. Well, so Tesla, stations, I yeah. don't know if they charge everything or if they <laughs> Well, I, anyway, they're waiting for parts because it's not finished yet. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was operational. Nope. Um, our loyal listener Val had called that to my attention. Oh, okay. Yeah, she um, a week or so ago uh, notified me, and actually, I think she sent some pictures 
And that is interesting as a 12-unit Tesla installation. Again, I, I'm not positive if that's going to be designed initially to charge only Teslas. Uh, Tesla has reached an agreement for some of its superchargers to uh, be usable with other with other uh, car companies, car makes. So yeah, I don't know, yeah. this being a new installation, I wouldn't be surprised. I'll look into it to see if I can find out if, if ultimately this um, new charger there in Kirkwood will be good for people with, say, Chevrolet electric vehicles or other other models, Toyotas or what what have you, but uh, that that's interesting because the uh, other supercharger, the Tesla installation, the only other one in Broome County is the one up on Front Street in the town of Shenango at what had been the Spot Diner mm-hmm. until a few days ago, and that that had only eight units. The owner of the Spot Diner told me that looking back over the last uh, couple of years. That supercharger was a huge, huge benefit to the business. He said because people had to use that facility if they were passing through this region, say if they're traveling through upstate New York and their uh, Tesla needed to be charged, well, that's where you would go. So you'd hook up your vehicle and then go inside to have uh, a meal or coffee and pie or something. So he said that was... That that may have actually kept uh, the spot restaurant open longer um, than it did. It's sad that that it uh, now is closing this month. But he said basically the the number of people that that came. He said I think it, I lost. I, I'm not sure if I wrote it down. He said it, at one point and sometimes on the weekends, even with eight of the. Uh, supercharger mm-hmm. units for people to use at once. Sometimes he said, I think as many as 16 or 17 other Teslas were were lined up waiting to get access to to a charging a station. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I, well, I, I had seen sometimes when they were quite busy. I never, never saw basically where more than a dozen that would have been, if I had been paying attention and ever came across that to see eight were at the the existing charging stations, and then say fifteen or seventeen were were gathered in the parking lot waiting mm-hmm. waiting for a, a slot to be available. That would have been a good picture. Yeah, it sort of would have been also a idea of the future in which uh, we're going to be sitting in lines trying to wait to get uh, fueled up because there just aren't enough uh, charging stations around. But the other thing that I noticed that which really shocked me is they're all right by the creek and at the lowest end of the parking lot and you know the park over there floods all the time and they're right along the creek i was looking i'm going why do they put them there i guess you know elon musk he's an unpredictable (laughs) he's an unpredictable run underwater Well, Maybe he's... they're going to have service boats also. <laughs> In case we have a flood, New... you know, bring your boat over, well, your electric boat, you know, maybe we're not going to have any gas boats anymore. Maybe so that's the first, the first clue that Tesla is going to launch uh, an ARC division. Yeah. Tesla yeah. ARCs. I know. I looked at it over there. Why did they put them over there? <laughs> Look at the creek right there. That big, you know, I mean, it floods. 
Yeah, you have a good, you know, good storms, and uh, they'd all be underwater, or partially underwater, at least, or probably all underwater. I don't well, know. I'll uh, I'll keep that in mind. It's it's basically a gift that keeps on giving from a journalism standpoint. We'll do do a story that they're still under construction. We'll do a story when the units are finally operational, and then we'll do a story when they're mm-hmm. surrounded by floodwaters. It's that's one of those stories that'll be relatively simple to write. Yeah, it seemed like it. I mean, I wasn't over there when the flood happened or anything like that, but uh, it just looked, I know the park there has flooded before. Well, and I don't I don't know a whole lot about Elon Musk, except that he's a genius and, and a billionaire, yeah. so, you know, well, he, he, cer- he certainly not- has a lot more on the ball than I do. I think from what I heard, anyway, the fellow from Snyder's Market was the one that approved it. So I'm not sure exactly uh, what kind of uh, you know coordination there was between who and what and where the money came from and where the money's going and things like that. But uh, I guess they needed someplace maybe with a big enough parking lot and everything. Uh, I know they got four chargers over at Love's Plaza there on Colesville Road right there. I've never seen more than two cars there. And only occasionally see a car even using the thing. Yeah. I'm going to talk to the guy that runs uh, the Town Square Media to see if they want our uh, next newsmobile. Seems like it's time for us to buy a new newsmobile. So uh, next time I see the guy that runs uh, our company, I'll um, ask him if he wants me <laughs> to uh, buy one of those uh, Tesla SUVs to be our, we could call it, News Radio, WNBF, with the news vehicle of the future. Oh, well, you just nickname it Tessie. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, just nickname it Tessie. You know, I mean, that's uh, nice and homey, and, uh, you know, everybody uh, can uh, um, nuzzle up to it, you know, because it's uh, Tessie's your aunt, you know, you know, that kind of thing. You yeah, know? well, and the other thing <laughs> nice is... Nice and friendly, you know. The great thing about electric vehicles is they're so silent, so I can basically slide into a news scene, as long as I don't get a bright red, Tessie, if it's, say, um, uh, a car that's relatively unobtrusive, you know, maybe maybe a black. I see a fair number of black and quite a few white Teslas around it. And there's another there's another color, too, that actually, if I was getting one for myself, my personal Tesla would be this... Blue. I don't know if it's a metallic blue, but it's this Tesla blue color is is really to my liking. So maybe maybe when I'm placing the order for a Tesla SUV that we'll call Tessie for the station, maybe at the same time I'll place an order for one of the smaller blue models. Well, you know, I, they're they're heavy. Obviously, they cause more road damage and tires wear much faster. I guess. Well, that means, that means more jobs. Maybe maybe at the new industrial park in Broome County, maybe they'll build a, a tire-making plant that'll make tires exclusively for Teslas. Well, I'm sure they're going to have something just like with electric bikes. I mean, the tires on those things are definitely uh, much, well, if you get a quality electric bike anyway. If you get a real cheap one, they just use bicycle tires on it, but... Uh, you know, there are the carcasses are, you know, about, um, well, sidewalls are probably four times as thick as they are on a regular bike. 
Yeah. Well, it's like with anything. You get typically, this is a fair rule of thumb. Typically, you get what you pay for. If if you mm-hmm. want if you want something cheap, go buy something cheap, but don't be surprised when the thing wears out after 60 days. Or if you want something that's designed to last at least maybe for 3 years or 4 years, whatever. I don't know what mm-hmm. the what what the expectation is, then pay more to get something that is better quality material and more more appropriately manufactured. Appreciate your call. Thanks for the uh, the info. All righty. Have, Have a good a weekend. weekend. Thanks. Bye. It's 11:48 with Bob Joseph live at News Radio WNBF 607-772-1290. We're on the air at 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, online at wnbf.com. Frequency, Kenneth. I would say 92.1 FM. Oh, Kenneth. Do you like amplitude modulation, do you? And it's 1290 AM. And CB Channel 44. And his friends, too. Uh, fun bunch, but a little loud. Uh, 1153 at WNBF with Bob Joseph here at the Red Hot Control Board. Oh, I hit the Red Hot button. Ooh, it's too hot to handle. Here's the forecast from the National Weather Service. Sorry. Coming mostly sunny this afternoon. High 60. Cloudy tonight with a slight chance of rain. Low 44. Tomorrow, cloudy. Rain likely, high 52. Tomorrow, a quarter to one half of an inch of the precipitation. Some rain and showers tomorrow night. Outlook for Sunday, partly sunny with a slight chance of showers and a high of 56. Right now, it's 50 in downtown Birmingham. That's 10 Celsius here at News Radio WNBF. Air quality is um, shockingly good. Maybe it's just uh, an aberration, but since we've been paying attention to air quality around here, which I would say we have been for four and a half months, I never much noticed air quality around here. It always seemed to be fairly good until the first week of June with all the smoke from the Canadian wildfires. Right now, the air quality index is reported to be 15, AQI. It says there's a little teeny tiny bit of ozone. So if you're not an ozone fan, well, beware. 15, though. 
Sometimes I wonder if it's almost too good. Don't they have to put like a few minor particulates into the air so our, our lungs can tolerate it? What if what if we've become acclimated to a certain level of pollution and now the air is so crystal clear and the AQI is down to 15 that we're we're just not in a position to be able to survive with such clean air. Well, as the busy, busy work week comes to an end, I feel compelled to make an important announcement. I, your loyal host, Bob Joseph, have enjoyed this week. We've had some fun. We've had some interesting conversations. And now I will take a little break for the weekend and then prepare to return Monday morning here on WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 AM, WNBF Binghamton. Now on 92.1 FM, W221 EJ Binghamton.